fellow fiends. Welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm John. I'm Kim. And today we are talking about spooky serums. I suppose. Or evil elixirs. Evil elixirs is better. <laughs> Powerful potions. I don't have a P. Putrid potions? Putrid. Eh. Fact of the matter is, we are talking about 1985's Reanimator and 1992's Death Becomes Her. Directed by Stuart Gordon and Robert Zemeckis, respectively. So this is kind of an interesting week. We are talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, Death Becomes Her, and Reanimator, which is a widely popular movie that was on my blind spot for a really long time, and I only saw it for the first time earlier this year, and I didn't love it. That's my fault. Uh, we got the Arrow video release, which includes the integral cut. It's got like an extra 20 minutes of footage. It's rated R. It's got all the gore and all the extra scenes, and it's not good. And thinking it was going to be this super fun fast-paced crazy movie i got drunk when we watched it and i fell asleep and i missed probably the coolest half of the film so we revisited it for this episode and i am happy to say that i love the film i'm so glad you're back on this camp this is one of my favorite films i absolutely love this movie and what's crazy is that i have definitely shown it to you before a few years ago first Time I watched it. <laughs> that's, a, that's okay. That's no big deal. The unrated cut, if that's if you're looking at the Arrow video release, the unrated cut is definitely the one to watch. I mean, you can watch the integral one if you want, just to see what it's like. They're having seen both versions now. I get the stuff that's in the longer version, but the pacing is so much more quick and yeah. uh, efficient in the shorter film. It's crazy that the director's cut, essentially the producer slash director's cut, is the shortest cut. It comes in, I think, at 88 minutes. And it focuses specifically on the story. It focuses on the horror. It, it does keep the gore still, but it moves the story along faster. The integral cut maybe adds a little more to the payoff in the final scenes, but that's about it. Like, up until then, Dr. Hill has way too much time on screen. He has this almost Jafar-like quality. You know, from Aladdin? Yeah. Jafar. yeah. <laughs> he, he's like Jafar and the, the Sultan with Barbara Crampton's dad. Yeah, yeah, I see that. That's kind of about it. But, but like, we'll get into it later. Kim, what's keeping you creepy this week? Well, if you've been living under a rock, then you did not hear that the biggest bomb dropped ever at the Super Bowl last, last Sunday. <laughs> and the third installment of the Cloverfield franchise dropped like a bomb. We got a teaser trailer that ended with on Netflix after the Super Bowl. And the entire internet lost their minds, we all watched Cloverfield Paradox, the third installment and what it was actually called, and I don't think I loved it. 
Which is really disappointing because that was the best fucking marketing I have ever seen. Oh, man. The team behind any campaign that's surrounding the Cloverfield movies is just fucking genius. So cool. And unlike anything anybody else is doing right now. Oh, yeah. The, the ARGs behind each film are ludicrous. What it's is an insane. ARG? Augmented reality game, oh. I believe is what it stands for. AR is typically augmented reality. I'm assuming G means game. For a short period of time, it makes everybody a private eye. All of a sudden, you know what it feels like to listen to a true crime podcast because you are you're in the trenches. You're trying to figure out what the fuck this scrambled message means and what these shadow companies are. And The craziest thing about this film, though, is that all started about a week back. Mm -hmm. a, a website popped up with crazy links to LinkedIn and an account and a person. and But then the movie just dropped and it blindsided everybody. I don't think they ever had intentions of going through with the full game. I think they wanted oh, no, to pretend yeah. like it was status quo and we're going to do teaser stuff. Exactly. And, and then they just dropped it. Yeah, because fans were basically saying, okay, so here's the timeline. We got our ARG game. We know that the, okay, you know, maybe the, the release date's been pushed back from February to April, but, you know, last time we got a teaser trailer during the Super Bowl, so maybe we're going to get the same one now. We totally got that. And then two hours later, we got the whole goddamn movie. The most interesting thing isn't even the fact that it's a Cloverfield movie and it's crazy, sporadic marketing. It's just a really ominous thing for Netflix to do. Mm. And I hope I'm not the only one in seeing this as a big statement. Oh, it's a fucking flex, right? Yeah, like, a, not a threat, but it's definitely something that cable companies should see as a message from Netflix to oh, say, yeah. like, don't be secure in your biggest night in television because how many viewers did they lose from that commercial? Oh, I'm sure they lost a ton. That little block right after the Super Bowl is a multi-million dollar segment of television. Yeah, and Netflix is normally pretty vague about its viewership. Even with, like, Stranger Things, we know it's a huge phenomenon based on the fan base and the merchandising and stuff but we we know very little on the overall numbers and things which I would be interested to see how Cloverfield fared and it's not getting the greatest reviews unfortunately which makes sense but I'm not worried I know the fourth one's coming yep I've heard they've already filmed it Rumor has it, it's already been filmed. Point is, we know nothing now. I keep wanting to say, oh, it should be out before the end of the year. It could be out by the time this podcast goes live. I was honestly expecting to stay up until 4 a.m. Sunday night watching it because I thought at the end of it, it was going to be like, Cloverfield 4, out now. And be like, oh, oh fuck, fuck me. <laughs> it's, it's just a really long exercise in how late they can get people to stay up after drinking all oh, day. Oh, you're like, I've been drinking beer since 2, please stop. It's the only time in my life that I've regretted not watching the Super Bowl. I know! Right? I tweeted that! It's just like, why? Why is all this cool shit? And there was a new Quiet Place teaser, eh. Jurassic Park teaser, eh. Westworld Season 2. Eh. Will you quit it? The <laughs> negative Nancy. Well, I mean, to be honest, yeah, I'm interested in that new Quiet Place teaser, but Westworld's not necessarily my bag. Really fucking should be. It's just not. So talk to me about Cloverfield. We're dancing around it because I don't think either of us loved it. I, uh, I'm still thinking on it. I don't want to say anything too negative about it. It felt really run-of-the-mill. Run of yeah. And I remember losing my mind over 10 Cloverfield Lane when I saw it. I remember being so flabbergasted at mm -hmm. how amazing of a standalone film it was. Yep. And this film was equally different from the Cloverfield we know and love, but it didn't feel tied to Cloverfield at all. I felt the same way coming out of 10 Cloverfield how Lane. How does Monsters... I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, well, I think there is a scene in the movie that can kind of sum up everything that you and I sort of feel about that movie. 
there is a moment where somebody says, well, based on we know about quantum entanglement, this is all possible. That's it. That's all they say about quantum entanglement. And you're left going, oh, okay, cool. All of this is possible. I should just trust them. But there are gaps and there are things I need to know. Why did this happen? It really touted itself as being the answer to the entire Cloverfield universe. Yeah. And I mean, we, we shouldn't really be that let down because that that's based on a promo that we saw two hours before the movie. But that is how it was advertised. My biggest issue with Cloverfield Paradox is that it felt like a two-hour trailer mm-hmm. to the fourth film. Oh, yeah. I, I know what the fourth film's about now because of how the third film set it up, and it didn't feel like a whole movie to me. It didn't feel like a whole story, and that was the greatest thing about 10 Cloverfield Lane. Even if you cut out the last 30 minutes, it was an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Paradox isn't a strong film. It's a kind of a run-of-the-mill comedy sci-fi that had some really cool elements and ideas, but it didn't feel smooth. You know, we've talked about it before in the podcast. I do hate those stepping stone movies like, say, Alien Covenant. Yeah, or like, oh, we have to do an individual Batman movie because he's going to be part of the Justice League. I don't want that. I I don't need it. I'm not paying $20 for you to just build a universe. You're just working towards something and you don't care about the individual parts. I'm having a hard time feeling that same resentment about this movie because it just landed in my lap. So yeah, it it was more or less a trailer for a new movie that's coming, and I'm going to go on record right now. I think that movie's coming in April. I think that fourth movie is fucking coming in April. Oh, you think it's going to be the original release date of God Particle? I agree. (laughs) Yes. I concur. And the hardest thing, too, is Paradox isn't a terrible movie. If I was rating, if I had just seen it, if it was Life, for instance, I would rate it at maybe a two out of four. But because it is a Cloverfield movie and I have such a high standard, I'm very disappointed. Oh, okay. But it's not a bad movie. I'm just very disappointed. Got it. I think I'm going to have a hard time giving a rating to this movie without seeing the next one, the next installment. Which is dumb. I know. I know it's dumb. But, you know, maybe all of the the things that I think are weak points of this movie are really just laying the groundwork for a bigger story that needed to be told without being a four-hour film. I think that's probably all it is. Like, hey, we have Cloverfield X that... It, it needs a huge story and we need to explain a lot and we don't have want to have a whole lot of exposition. So why don't we just whip together a quick little $2 million movie and put it out on Netflix? They should have released them both in tandem then. That would have been fucking cool. Yo, what if you wake up tomorrow and that February release date is still in play and we have to go see a new Cloverfield movie in two weeks? I know April is the scheduled date, but what if April oh. is... Oh my God, Kim. Honestly, what if it flip-flops back from February to April and April back to February... Like the fucking God particle in Cloverfield Paradox. No. <laughs> yeah, movies without fanfare is dope. They just have to be good movies. <laughs> that's, that's really true. And I think we are holding this to a very high standard. The other big release between last episode and this episode would, of course, be Winchester. Former... The house that ghosts built. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't dro- I know they dropped it from the title, but I can't stop saying it because I think it is just ludicrous that it made it beyond its first draft. They're like, yeah, Winchester, and then hyphen. No, write this down. Write this down. <laughs> the house. House. Like, yeah, like house. Ghost built. 
because they built it. Yeah, I wrote a review on the website the weekend it dropped, if you haven't read that, and I was not kind. I was very not favorable towards it. I didn't have high hopes for the film from the trailer because it felt really gimmicky and there was a lot of jump scares even within the trailer. Mm -hmm. And what I really wanted for this film was something a little bit more subtle and very classic ghost story. It's a period film based on a real-life house, mm -hmm. based on a real-life ghost story mystery and a very unique woman with a very interesting story. Mm -hmm. And it just needed a delicate hand. It should have been The Others. It should have been that The Haunting of Hill House. It should have been The Changeling. And it was somewhere in between The Insidious and The Conjuring franchise. I think that they were planning on making this like the Conjuring franchise, they wanted... I think it was intended to be a competitor, their competitor franchise. They were like, we need a really strong ghost franchise mm -hmm. to run alongside uh, Universal's The Conjuring. Because how many fucking ghost stories can we have in this house? Hundreds! Yeah. Like that's the idea that each house, each room in the house is supposed to be for another separate ghost. And, you know, honestly, if, if we're looking at the ghosts that we see surrounding our main character at the end of the movie as previews for what those other movies would have been, I didn't see any single one that I went, I want to see that fucking movie. Yeah, and the ghost in this one was completely irrelevant to anything, and for it to be the main story didn't make sense. They just Especially picked, for being the big baddie. They picked know? a random, like, boss-level ghost. They picked a random, like, Bowser <laughs> for the house, and it didn't have anything to do with anything. I mean, Sarah Winchester, her character was going through her own demons, and this psychologist character that they wrote into the story had his own demons, and it was sort of shaping up to be a ghost story where these people had to figure out how to continue living after loss. And then we had this stupid side ghost who who was like a bandit with a gun and it just they diverged towards shock and awe where they should have been trying to find humanity in the horror and that's what a true classic ghost story is is the humanity of it all yeah and there's so much grief in somebody who's tormented by ghosts and ugh, i just i'm really disappointed because i've always loved the winchester house mm -hmm. And when this film was announced, I was so, so excited. Um, it's got Helen Mirren. Like, there is fucking talent in this movie. Yeah, and unfortunately, I didn't even love Helen Mirren in this. No, not really. And I don't think it was any of her doing. I just don't think her character was fleshed out enough. She didn't really exist beyond giving the ghost rules and explaining. Her scenes were just rule scenes. Like, it was literally just like, and then this is happening, and then this is also happening. Don't forget, 13 nails. Then the character wasn't strong strong enough to exist beyond one film, let alone multiple films. Yeah, could you imagine her being, like, the Warrens? Wouldn't work. Yeah, she and she should have been insightful and ominous, and instead she, she just felt stiff, and her character didn't even move around the scenes she was in. Mm-hmm. Honestly, she was literally sitting in a chair most of the time. That is true. Honestly, though, I think the I think your title for the review really sums up uh, how a lot of people feel about the movie. The latest addition to the Winchester home is another dead end. <laughs> uh, I think that was very smart. Thank you. And I commend you on a brilliant byline. If you'd like to hear our full thoughts on both of those movies, The Cloverfield Paradox and The Winchester... It's not The Winchester. It's just Winchester. Winchester. <laughs> 
Head over to patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. We have a full review of both of those movies available to you as a monthly supporter of the show. And as a monthly supporter of the show, you're also going to get a ton more bonus content in addition to those bonus episodes like swag, stickers, shoutouts on the show, and even Twitter shoutouts. And that's all at patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. I do have to say, before we start talking about these films, I didn't take any notes this week because these are probably the most fun films we've ever done on the podcast and so demanding of your attention. The special effects and the visuals, the level of fantasy is in every single scene and every moment. I cannot believe that it took us this long to pair these two films together. And we did it on kind of a whim. We hadn't planned it out. We were going to do Reanimator and From Beyond, which we also watched to talk about. Yeah, we wanted to do a full HP Lovecraft episode. But when we were watching Reanimator, it just... Well, you had a you had a genius observation. You were like, this is the boy version of Death Becomes Her. Yeah, like I grew up with Death Becomes Her with that elixir story about aging and beauty and vanity. And mine from childhood was definitely an elixir story about bringing about evil and destruction and hideousness. And they both have that same kind of crazy fantasy score. It's really operatic and classic and um, foreboding for a fantasy film. They're both really highly stylized, crazy adventures that... I'm really stoked to talk about. Yeah, they're a hell of a lot of fun. So first, let's talk about Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the 6 to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. <laughs> But lately, they're getting on his And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. From 1985, currently sitting at a 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb, a 94% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, 3 out of 4 Eberts, and a 3.7 out of 5 currently on Letterboxd. Those are some really good ratings. Really good ratings. I'm telling you, people love this movie. Yeah, well, I tweeted a picture of or just like a boomerang of the title sequence the other day when we were watching it. And Twitter went like bonkers. Everybody was replying to me like, that's my favorite movie, I love that movie, oh, good choice. I was like, oh man, you guys don't know that I'm like watching this and watching this for the first time, for the first real time. (laughs) Watching it again for the first time. Yeah. That title sequence is awesome. I love it. The superimposed neon medical diagrams, fucking cool. Oh, it's brilliant. And the score is like, that's terrible. That was a really terrible. It's okay. It's fantastical for a medical horror. Also terrible description. I don't know how else to describe it. It's fun. it's... It's Disney's Fantasia if it dealt with zombies. Let's, let's be real. 
Well, I was saying this about From Beyond, but it works for Reanimator how I was saying it was Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Okay. Or Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. Take your pick. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty sure Stuart Gordon worked on either Honey, I Blew Up the Kid or the Honey, I Shrunk the Kid's TV show. There was this weird era of fantasy sci-fi stuff coming out of the late 80s, early 90s. We wouldn't see stuff this strange nowadays. Can you imagine somebody be pitching like, oh yeah, dad's like a crazy inventor <laughs> and either he buys a mogwai from Chinatown or <laughs> he invents a rebiginator up in the, the attic and like kills the neighborhood children with it. That's true. I mean, we are seeing remakes of those movies like fucking Critters is coming back. I couldn't imagine that being a new property now. Like, oh, these furry little monsters, they kind of look like hamsters that have overgrown and have razor-sharp teeth and just fucking eat people. Uh, that's but they're cute. Out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they are cute. <laughs> we got Leo locked down. He's going to be in it. It's fine. <laughs> we should watch those movies soon. How many are there? Uh, last I checked, there's four. There, wow. might be, there might be more. I have never seen Critters. It's good. The first one I remember really liking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a... Uh... Strong recommendation there from John. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't remember loving the second one. The third one's got Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm pretty sure by the time we get to the fourth one, we've been in the franchise long enough to see the good guy become the villain. Uh, I think it just has that, that natural arc that you tend to see. So going into this film, I thought it was just going to be a modern reimagining of Frankenstein. In some ways it is. In some ways it is, but... It's a fun, like, little crazy adventure about reanimating dead bodies in the morgue. <laughs> yeah, so Dr. Herbert, I guess student Herbert West, not a doctor yet, is in med school. He's come over from Switzerland. Basically, the star pupil of a very famous doctor over there who's done some breakthrough research in brain death. And he's extended the period of consciousness after brain death to 25 minutes? Versus the acceptable 6 to 12 minutes. Which is the the published findings of his current professor and Dr. Hill. Dr. Carl Hill. Who is adamant that the brain can only survive 6 to 12 minutes and, without oxygen, blood, whatever. Yeah, and good God, if you snap a pencil when he says that in his class, he is gonna have you fucking flunked. Why is that the most insulting thing? Where he's like, 6 to 12 minutes. It's just not respectful. I suppose that's true. I, I'm not a, a... It's very I'm, disrespectful. I'm a millennial. I don't understand respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that scene is actually really cool, though, when he's pulling the, oh, where the he's... scalp back. That was really uncomfortable to watch. Really? Yeah. I Even just... after watching, like, Autopsy of Jane Doe or a thousand other movies? Yeah. The, something about skulls and stuff. Like, whenever you can see a skull, it's not good. You know why? It's never good for anybody when you can see a skull. <laughs> oh, definitely not. Shit's gone down. <laughs> You're probably not alive anymore. I know exactly why it's unsettling. It's because the scalp is peeled back and just resting over the face. Yeah! <laughs> and the hair and stuff. And he's like, it's just like peeling an orange. And then in your head, you're the like, The whole what? class chuckles. Who peels an orange like that? <laughs> How many times do you think that fucking guy has told that joke? Oh, every semester. Every... Just like peeling an orange. Oh, man. Some girl's barfing in like the garbage <laughs> can in the back. Just like an orange. I didn't like the brain. I thought the brain looked fake. No, I like the brain. And then I found out later that it's a cow's brain. <laughs> so it was a real brain. It's a real brain. Yeah. It just looks like it's gelatin. Brains are goopy, John. Yeah, I guess I just picture brains being like... Solid? Solid, yeah. Like I could no. put it in a jar of formaldehyde and it would grow eyes. Well, that might happen. Oh. But brains are pretty goopy. Interesting. They're really soft. That's why they're in a skull. I get, Yeah, that's a really good point. If they were tough and durable, like if they could pack a punch, they All wouldn't need... All their organs are slippery. Like livers and lungs and stuff, they're, they're soft. 
that's why organ meat is like a delicacy because it's super oh I or guess chewy. Makes sense. I don't know. You know <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. You've never We're eaten vegans them. talking about organs as meat. Uh, Here, let me tell you why the gizzard's the best thing to get. It's gross. I don't. I don't. <laughs> act, I don't actually know. I've always assumed that they were tougher. Like, wouldn't your organs be working more than any other muscle in your body? Shouldn't they be tougher? Is that what makes muscles tough? Yeah, but they don't have a lot. They're not, like, sinewy like a leg muscle because they don't move around or anything. They have one function that primarily occurs within inside it. Okay, so one function, one sort of use is probably juicier and more delicious. Does that mean that bodybuilders would taste the most? Taste the best if we ate them? Okay. Probably not. Yeah. I was going to say, like... Like, I'll... sweaty or something. <laughs> This thing just tastes like narcissism. I don't get it. <laughs> Let's get into this movie. So we follow Dan? Is his name Dan? Give me a second. Let me pull out. It the... is Dan. It's Dan. Dan. Daniel Kane, who's dating Dean Halsey's daughter, Megan, played by Barbara Crampton. Yeah. Okay. He's a medical student at Miskatonic Medical University. I think everything in, in these movies is Miskatonic, right? I don't. I don't Everything H.P. Lovecraft? I don't know. I have a Miskatonic... I'm wearing it right now, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> you are wearing I'm it. I'm wearing a Miskatonic University shirt. Which is so weird, because we are typically not H.P. Lovecrafty... Lovecraftian? Lovecraftian, yeah. We're not Lovecraftian. I'm Cronenbergian more than Lovecraftian. Lovecraft ruse. I don't know what it is. Um, I love... I'm more of a Count Chocula. <laughs> uh, aren't we all? <laughs> I would probably like his stories more. I've read some of them. I, I think I got bogged down with his poetry. Uh, I don't really know why I sought that out, but I have a collection uh, that a friend got me for Christmas of all of his short fiction, which is probably most of it now that I think about it. He only really wrote novellas and short stories and poetry. Read a bunch of it, thought it was interesting. I love the idea of the unknowable and unimaginable, like you, something so scary and so beyond your comprehension that you can't even describe it. Like, no matter what it is, even if it's the good guy, it looks horrific to you. Mm -hmm. I like the merging of science with fantasy. There's a lot of that. It's a little steampunky, his sure. horror. Mm -hmm. There's something really gross, though, and creaturey about it, which is, I think, what deters me from it. I'm not big on creatures and everything becomes a monster because the the message in all of them is really cool. And he's actually, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, trying to find a modern-day message about greed or advancement of society you know what i mean there's mm -hmm. all those messages are in each of the individual stories but they all seem to end in like and then a horrible creature comes out from the netherverse and you're like what why does it have to have tentacles <laughs> yeah i mean in from beyond like the monster gets more and more grotesque and it looks cool but you're wondering what else the universe has you're like okay give me the monster but i want to see what the doors look like and give me the architecture that'd be interesting yeah I'm, I'm gonna put a pin in that we're gonna talk about from beyond in a little bit i will at least say that i think the reason the lovecraftian stuff has that sort of you know creature from the nether world of tentacles and slimy bits mm -hmm. is probably more our faults with cinema because mm. i'm pretty sure in most of his writing it was really left up to the imagination. He did a great job of ex of describing what happened to the people once they saw those things with their own eyes and how mad they went. But I think, you know, with a movie, you actually have to put that on the screen. Yeah. So w what else do you draw on other than just 
every terrifying thing about every terrifying creature 50,000 miles under goopy, the ocean. Goopy, make it goopy! Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, realistically, if we showed H.P. Lovecraft what fish look like miles down at the bottom of the ocean, he'd be like, yeah, no, that stuff, that's what I'm talking about. There's a light bulb on the end of that fish. It's ungodly. <laughs> We talk about that light bulb fish. Do we? Every other episode. I am telling you, we've talked about that damn fish so many times. All right, so we have deep-seated fears. <laughs> about the, the bottom of the sea. Yeah. <laughs> I keep wanting to call it a jaguar shark for some reason. No, what is it called? I don't know what it's called. My brain is not going to recall that name. Nope. Gone. Herbert West is a new student at Miskatonic University, and Barbara Crampton really doesn't like the look of him. In fact, nobody really likes the look of him. But he's Dan's new roommate because he's got a basement. And cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? If you are screening a roommate... There was it, no screening process. That's what I'm getting at. First of all, screen a roommate. But secondly, creepy guy shows up, says, you'll never see me. It's like I'm not here. Oh, you have a basement. Yes, this'll do. Bad signs, right? Only interested in the basement where there are no well, windows. Plus, the only scenes we've got with him before this, he's being kind of a pompous asshole. So, I mean, you know he's kind of just a jerk anyways, but he's hilarious, and I want more hijinks, so go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey Combs. He's like the only guy who can pull off being a complete ass to the characters he's in the film. He's so hilarious in this movie. Right, yeah. So hilarious, and... It was probably our setback that we watched From Beyond first, because I didn't love From Beyond. It was all right. It was the direct follow-up to this movie. It was, it it had some interesting things. It had things. its moments. Yeah. It had some really cool stuff in it, but I was, like, wowed by Reanimator. The acting and the, the jokes and stuff, his deadpan is so good. It is he the weirdest is so sense of humor. funny. It's oh, my God. craziest sense of humor in this movie. In fact, they, they refer to it as red comedy. There's black comedy and red comedy. And it's like when black comedy goes even further than you could possibly imagine, that's red comedy. It's a little bit smarmy, but it's hilarious. And his delivery is so frank. It is knee-slappingly funny. My cat died. Why didn't you leave a note? She's like, oh, and what would that note read, Dan? <laughs> cat, cat dead. <laughs> Details later. <laughs> oh, man. Because you're like, oh my god, he killed a cat. And then you're, oh yeah, that makes total sense. We're assholes for not letting this guy have the opportunity to tell us our cat's dead. He totally killed that cat, though. I don't know, though. I he mean, definitely killed that cat. I don't take him... For the sake of science, he killed that cat. I don't take Herbert West to be the kind of guy who would commit murder. He just jumps on opportunity. He murdered a guy in the basement. That was self-defense, Kim, and you know it. It was, it was mild blackmail. <laughs> Moderate blackmail. He was going to ruin his career. He was going to take all of his research. So ruining your career is self-defense? I think self-defense only counts if your immediate life is threatened. <laughs> Kim, we're out of ice cubes, self-defense! <laughs> That's the last straw. Um, you've raised some good points. Definitely murder. <laughs> Definitely unshakable, undefensible murder. The cool thing in this is, so Herbert West is setting out to prove that brain death can exist 25 years. He's going to conquer brain death. Exactly. Like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we completely gloss over what it is that is proves the solution. Mm. We There's this special green elixir, the reanimator liquid. Boom. We don't know anything about it. And I fucking love that mm. because I think that if we tried to explain it and we spent a lot of time with eels and electricity like in Kenneth Brothers Frankenstein, right. it takes away from the magic of the fantasy. It just exists. This is a world where Herbert West 
has the elixir, and we, we don't ever see him making it. Nope. He just, like, has it. Yep. And he happens to have some upstairs. Just in some case it gets satch, stolen downstairs. And of course, indestructible plastic, one of man's only good inventions. Thank God for that indestructible plastic. He did get launched across the room, though. If it was a glass bottle, can you imagine? How do you clean that shit up? Like, you can barely clean up olive oil when you spill it on the floor. What is an elixir that brings people back from the oh, man, dead like to get out of your pants? Oh, man, olive oil on the floor? Can you imagine do- dropping a whole jar of olive oil on the floor? I, mean, I don't even... We would just new tile over top. I mean, it's got to be better than breaking a bottle of cologne in your luggage. That is oh, something man. that I live in deep fear of constantly Do you remember every when that time happened? we travel. I dropped my perfume and it exploded and the bathroom smelled amazing for like <laughs> seven months. <laughs> and you're like, it smells like Vegas in here. <laughs> yeah, if there's one thing Vegas smells like, it's too much perfume. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's mainly because it also smells like cigarettes. Those are the two scents you get. Yeah. And shame, I guess. And, yeah. <laughs> shame. No, you don't really get to smell the shame. They have the air conditioning to lift that up. Yeah, it's gone pretty fast. <laughs> Except so, for those casinos where they have, like, the $1 beers. <laughs> it smells like shame in there. <laughs> so Dan comes downstairs while Herbert West has reanimated his cat, uh, which is his introduction to the reagent. I think is what he calls that it, That right? scene is so good. That scene is incredible. Oh my, and it's just a fucking stuffed cat sewn on the back of his shirt. Yep. And the shadows in that scene with the swinging light. Oh yep. my god, it's so good. I gotta tell you, the lighting department in this movie is fucking incredible. And normally we say, like, the lighting was good. We're shitting on the movie in a nice way. Because <laughs> that's all you can say is the lighting was good. But the lighting was so fucking good in this movie. Oh, it's incredible. I am a sucker for scenes where we have just, like, a single light bulb on a string and it's been smacked and it's swaying around. Which is brilliant because, I mean, we're hiding the fact that there's no goddamn cat in that basement. They're just pretending it's over there and then they rustle And there's over. no cat! No, oh, not so at all. it's so good though, but it's you believe genius. them. Yeah, and it's got this chaos built into it. You're totally there with them and uh, it, it immediately heightens the scene, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I do have to say that the rungs on those basement stairwells Fuck, I love that you mentioned this. utilized so well shadow-wise in this movie. Especially when Dr. Hill comes in to steal the reagent, right? And it's the background, like such, just such good staging. Just cascading across the back wall. Well, here's the thing. Stuart Gordon was a theater director for years. So smart. Right? That's what he did. That's why also some of the blocking and some of the the pacing in some of the scenes is very much like a theater performance. You can kind of just see it. Like, that's obviously how he would direct. Apparently the biggest problem for him was trying to figure out where to put the camera. Like, where he's standing, everything looks great, but the director of photography is like, yeah, no, this is bullshit. This is garbage. <laughs> well, and that's the thing with theater is you're, you're playing to one wall. If you're doing something fantastical and that's really over the top staging it like a play where you are playing to literally the TV screen, that is the only vantage point, that makes total sense in those basement scenes because Herbert is literally at a table that's right at the front of the stage. Mm -hmm. The backdrop is the stairs and the shadows and all that stuff, and you have your two characters right behind the table interacting. And that is like a cooking show. Yeah, and of course we have, you know, Dr. Hill who's looking through the microscope at the reagent working with the dead cat tissue while Herbert West is in the back getting a shovel to kill him like they do a great job of having a foreground and a background in, in some of those scenes my favorite moments in this movie though all take place basically within the morgue i mean like that's where the majority of the horror is but this movie basically has three locations with a few, like one or two days shot elsewhere it's it's the basement it's the morgue and it's the hallway just outside that morgue. <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of scenes taking place in that hallway yeah um I had fallen asleep before any of the morgue stuff, so when that third act of the film came up and we were doing a lot of morgue stuff, I was like, what the fuck is happening in this movie? I thought it was going to be something to do with, like, the the roommate dies and then Herbert's got to reanimate him because whatever. That'd be cool. 
But yeah, it's kind of nuts. It's it's a really efficient movie too. We the the dean finds out that they've reanimated the cat. Obviously, he's he's worried that they're using some uh, school equipment to do the research at home. He expels Herbert West because he's a madman, and you know he threatens to expel Daniel because he's dating his daughter. So they break in. They they run their experiments inside the hospital in the morgue. They bring back a guy from the dead who then kills her dad when he comes in to see what the fuck they're up to. I do want to say the morgue scene where they're trying to find the body is fucking hilarious when they're reading the toe tags. That is so funny. Oh yeah. Shotgun to the face. This won't do. <laughs> but the guy they reanimate, I just want to talk about the makeup for a second because it is, it's over the top. It's kind of crazy. But, and we saw this in the featurette, they did actually do a lot of corpse research and they looked at a lot of dead bodies. The blood pooling on the guy they reanimate oh, is yeah? so fucking awesome because he's been lying on a slab oh, for God so knows true. how long. Yep. The entire back half of him is dark red and the front half of him is, is pale. He's literally 180, two different colors from the back of him to the front of him. And the fact that they took those details, even though it's fantastical, as somebody who looks for that kind of stuff, you're just like, fucking right. So cool. But Dean, Dean Halsey's killed by this guy and immediately because Herbert West sees the opportunity. We're like, never fresh, gonna, fresh, fresh. Right? We're <laughs> never going to find a body fresher than this. We got to bring him back. It's crazy that Dan goes along with all of this, but... He did for penny and for pound. But know? his character is kind of interesting because you believe that he would. I'm not like, why is this guy going along with Crazy Herbert's shenanigans? Because it is Crazy Herbert's shenanigans, but there's something about Dan that, I don't know, I believe in his character that he would at least go along for as long as he does. Yeah, no, agreed. Especially with the Dean, because, you know, it's his girlfriend's dad, but he's also, you know, basically his boss as a student. But even the introduction of his character right at the beginning of the movie, the first thing we see him doing is going over the top to try and bring somebody back from flatlining. He doesn't think that they're doing enough to help these people. Well, and he wants to be a doctor. I mean, he wants to help people. And this is crazy research that this guy's doing, and it's a little unorthodox. But if he's actually right, and he's seen his cat reanimate, if he knows he's right, mm -hmm. this could save lives. Especially when you know that everybody in history who has said, hey, uh, there's evidence to suggest that we're completely wrong on everything that we think about is usually considered crazy because it doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't seem possible. I think I mentioned it before. The guy who, who discovered bacteria was lobotomized, right? Like, that's fucking crazy to me. So they reanimate the Dean. But yeah, they, they reanimate the Dean. You know, quickly thereafter, security shows up and the Dean is put in the care of Dr. Hill, who seems to be like a jack-of-all-trades in terms of taking care of patients. He is a... Is he a pathologist? Is that what he does? Or is he a psychologist? I think he's... I don't know. I'm going to say he's a professor sure. <laughs> with a doctorate. <laughs> it, seem, it seems like he is the money bags for this university. He is doing all of the leading research that's being published in John Hopkins' medical journal. He's definitely bringing in all the donations. <laughs> oh, for sure, right? So he's been studying Dean Halsey, and he's realized, oh, you're dead. Herbert West is right, and that's where he goes after him to steal his reagent. He blackmails him, essentially, to say, hey, I know this guy's dead, but we're going to keep that a secret so I can claim your research as my own. Because that's what I do. Until, of course, Herbert West cuts his fucking head off with a shovel. That's such a fun scene, though. All of the the effects that they do with him 
because his body is reanimated. His head is reanimated. Never tries to put his own head back on. Just carries his head around with him with a, in a metal tray. And it looks so good. There's some scenes where the body's a little fat and hokey. Oh, yeah. Well, where he's holding his own head out. Yeah. Whatever. But, fuck, it's not. It, it's so fun. That said, though, when his head is in the tray and you can sort of see him breathing, like the bubbling coming out of the blood... I absolutely love it. But when he's trying to rape Barbara Crampton... Oh, that's so fucking weird. It is so fucking crazy, oh. right? But here's the thing. It and that looks, head with his tray eyes. Ugh. It looks so good. <laughs> because it's it's just basically the actor sticking his head out into frame. But the way somebody's holding his head, we totally believe. And with the prosthetics sort of hanging off his neck, we totally believe that he is a floating head. It looks head. just like a floating head. It's fantastic. They do an incredible job. And then also that his body is walking around with the the, the medical head on top of it, like a fake oh head. Oh my god, I love that scene. When he's sneaking into the morgue in that security guard, and he's got the uh, the medical head and half of it's a skull, so he's like, doo 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 dude head. Oh, that fucking killed me. That was like a Simpsons segment. Oh yeah, that guard is pretty gross, though. I mean, it's, it's, not, um, it's not unheard of to have your security guard reading Playboy or whatever during his shift when he goes yeah break time I think and walks it, away with the magazine but I love how gross. efficiently they get rid of him well I think that's yeah that's the <laughs> idea it's supposed to be a dumb joke because it's like well we can't have you here for this scene to play Bye. out so have an extended break sir every opportunity whenever any of our characters go in the morgue he's like I'm just gonna go grab a coffee for 30 or 40 hours I'll be right back <laughs> I don't exist anymore of course, Dan and Herbert West break in just in time to save Barbara Crampton from this creepy motherfucker going down on her, I guess? I don't know. I don't... I, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, let's not talk about it, but the It point was is... a disembodied head and body. <laughs> Dis- and then... Disembodied body? Disenheaded body. And they're there just in time for the final showdown. Barbara Crampton's dad has... Kind of become sentient? He becomes a little helpful in this final act. Yeah, he is definitely aware of his surroundings and he knows what's going on because they brought him back early enough. That's the fucking key, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But Dr. Hill has reanimated all of the other corpses in the morgue and they are under his control and when they fucking pop up... Oh my god, that is crazy! There was a moment I think you were taking notes about something, like you were writing a line down. I was like, Kim, stop writing. Just fucking stop writing. And you're like, why? I'm like, "Just, just trust me here. This is great. It was really cool. Plus, a lot of them you could point out from the toe tags they were reading out earlier. Such a good callback. There was that shotgun wound guy. It was good. The, it guy, was who's, the guy who died in malpractice is basically tied up in IV tubes. <laughs> and everybody's naked. Every single one of them's it's naked. It's a morgue. Oh, no, I get it. You know what? Death Becomes Her has a pretty extensive morgue scene also. Good on us. All right. Great pairing. And this is where you start to see more Lovecraftian stuff, right? When Herbert West decides, I'm going to overdose him with the reagent to stop him, things go bonkers. He starts to sprout more arms and his chest opens up and tentacles come out from beyond. That is one of my favorite things about this movie. And I think this is probably one of the biggest things that lands it in the, the Lovecraftian era. I love the idea that his chest cavity is now like a portal to this other world. And that's how Herbert West dies, right? He gets snagged by, like, the arms of a Cthulhu or something, right? And just drags him into something. Mm -hmm. And he screams for eternity. I don't know. I, eh. 
Yeah, you didn't like it? I know. <laughs> you thought it was too cheesy I love ending? the magic of the reagent, and I don't... Oh, well, yeah. I, I don't think everything needs to be a portal to somewhere else, H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> I, I don't think everything has to either, but this one portal... I'm there, every to movie with. has a goddamn portal. <laughs> Kim, it, no portals. We're allowed to have one. <laughs> but Dan and Megan escape. Unfortunately, just as they're getting into an elevator, a fucking guy from beyond the grave with the strength of ten men starts strangling Barbara and there's nothing that he can do to stop him. So he runs down the hallway, easily one of my favorite shots of the movie, comes back with an axe and chops off his arm, but, you know, not enough time to save Megan. Poor Barbara. I mean, Megan. <laughs> Poor Megan. That's okay. Bookending this movie just like we did at the beginning. We end with that crash cart. He's pumping her chest. He's trying to get the defibrillator What's a crash going. Cart? The crash cart is like the defibrillator and the thing. Like, is that what they call it? They call it well, in TV and movies. I like I, I'm that. assuming it's called that in real life. That sounds cool. I think it's just like everything you need to try and revive a person. Like, I think it's got like your defibrillator. Cart. It's got your beep beep screen. Uh, give, give me your beep beeps. <laughs> it's, it's got your Pulp Fiction needle to mm. be adrenaline shot. Give me the shot! You know, and it's got one of those. And uh, they can't do anything about it. She's dead. She's gone, Dan. There's nothing. You've done your best. They clear the room. This is always the weirdest, right? Like, let's give him some alone time. What's he gonna do? Is he gonna kiss her? Yeah, and she's disrobed at this point, so it's just like, yeah. Mm. This is a guy who's desperate. She's dead. We don't understand why. Also, there's like a fire going on downstairs. Let's just give him a minute. Clearly, he's not responsible for any of this. He looks like he just came out of a bar fight. I wouldn't. Nobody even anybody. asks where he came from with this dead woman. No, nope. fresh dead. Like the dean's in a daughter. Hospital. Yeah, like. Um, they came up from the morgue, sir. Like, I guess they're just like, let's get her breathing again, and then we'll figure it out. But there's definitely a bunch of corpses downstairs, aren't there? Or don't, or they die when what's his name dies? Oh, that's yeah, yeah. They they all uh, they all scream bloody murder when he gets killed, and uh, they can't handle it anymore because they they, they drop it like it's hot. <laughs> they drop it like it's hot. Oh my god! They also tear apart the dean in the coolest silhouette. Like what an easy. Way oh, to... that is a cool silhouette. The lighting in the morgue during all the um the the undead has risen bits are really cool. I love it. With an ending fitting to the film, dark as it is, no happy endings for anybody. He administers that reagent just as the credits come up, and we hear Barbara Crampton scream as as the screen goes black. It's an awesome way to end a movie. Is yeah, that... no, it was really cool. The perfect denouement for that crazy music to kick up when the credits roll. With the <laughs> scream. <laughs> I know, I tried to do an impression of it. It was not good. Yeah, that's okay. I could just put a clip in, maybe. That's a good idea. Let's do that. But, John, what is your rating? You know, that's not really hard for me on this one, I think. Um, for, for me personally... Reanimator is a four out of four. Uh, I am going to go in a three and a half out of four. I, I had a feeling. I'm glad you gave it the half. It deserves it. Yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised with it. It was really fun. I wish I had discovered it when I was discovering all the other weird fantasy movies I loved at mm -hmm. that age of like 13 years old because I would have eaten it up. You know, if you had seen this movie earlier in life, Jeffrey Combs could have easily have been your Crispin Glover. No. Oh, I think so. No. I think if you, he, uh, you had a goddamn at an impressionable age. He's, he's the one in Frighteners, right? Yeah. No. No? He's older in Frighteners. I know, but I don't know. What's the first movie you saw with Crispin Glover where you were like, him, that's the one? <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen movies with him in it, but it wasn't until Charlie's Angels 2, and I was just like... Charlie's Angels 2. What? Okay. <laughs> Maybe it was Charlie's Angels 1. I don't know. 
shut up. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> uh, he's so weird. He's very weird. I don't know. I like when people's weird shines through everything that they do in R. Because <laughs> you're just like, you're weird when you're home alone. You're weird <laughs> in your slippers. <laughs> That's what I love. Those are my favorite kind of <laughs> Are you weird in your slippers, guys? I don't know if you guys know that Kim is wearing slippers <laughs> right now while we record. <laughs> she is she is perfectly dressed for like a regular going out day. Oh, we're going slippers. out in about a half an hour and I'm wearing slippers. <laughs> Whatever, it's fucking cold. <laughs> Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. All right, guys, we are going to talk about Death Becomes Her next, and I'm so excited. It's my favorite movie. I'm so pumped. Let's play a trailer. Know that it's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Are about to go too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are, but you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do <laughs> this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! So currently sitting at, oh wait, from 1992, mm -hmm. currently sitting at a 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb, a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 3.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. I do not have an Ebert rating, but somebody reviewed it on IMDb and said that Siskel and Ebert did not like it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I do want to say, before we start talking about this movie, nobody talks about this movie. Nobody talks about it. Maybe more so now because of the um, Shout Factory release, the Blu-ray. For the longest time, one, I could never find it. Mm -hmm. I used to rent this as a kid at the Jumbo Video near the train tracks at my college. It was a really sketchy situation. And nobody ever talked about it. Nobody. 
why isn't this movie more yeah, popular? Yeah, that's that's actually uh, that's actually a really good question, especially when you especially when you see who's in it. It is a huge movie. It has Goldie Hawn, Meryl Streep, and Bruce Willis in not an action role. It's very true, and maybe that's why. Like, it's not necessarily the cast that a horror audience has gone that fucking movie. But this, if you haven't seen it or it's been a long time, is on par with movies like Clue or. Evil Dead 2, I'll say. Or, realistically, Tales from the Crypt. Like, if you're a fan of Tales from the Crypt, and it's been a long time since you've seen Death Becomes Her, you need to fucking rewatch this movie. Yeah, this is, like, Beetlejuice. It's fantasy, and it's adventure, and it's odd. It's Robert Zemeckis at his most genre film-ish. Yeah, this is Robert Zemeckis's Peter Jackson's Dead Alive slash Brain Dead. Okay. That is what this movie is. <laughs> It's pretty great. It's a mix of a lot of different things. But you're right. People, uh, I don't hear enough people talk about this movie. No, we need to talk me. about this movie every goddamn day because it is so good. Yeah, I, I don't doubt people have seen it. Maybe it's not their favorite. I mean, it's only got a 52% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm really upset about that. Just interesting. And that's, that's the critic rating though, right? I think the issue though is that it's like people who are big into drama and stuff, they go through Meryl Streep's back catalog, and then they're just like, what the fuck is this weird movie? Yeah. And it's the best goddamn movie that ever existed. I'm gonna have a really hard time talking about this, because there is nothing bad about this movie. Everything is good. Every single moment, every single line of dialogue, every nuance, the acting. So you first saw this movie at a video store. Like, you saw the cover and you were like, that's the one. Yeah, and for some reason my parents were like, hmm, maybe we should read and see what this is about. They were just like, sure. <laughs> and I rented it every summer since then. I was probably, I don't want to say too young. I'm going to say nine, maybe. I was really young. Yeah. Don't you wish that when all video stores went out of business, they looked up the the person that rented each movie the most and said, hey, this is yours now. <gasps> that would be cool. Or they don't say anything, they just mail the movie. That'd be, for well, the they red, have your information, right? <laughs> for the Red Curtain area, that'd be really weird for wives Ooh. to be like, oh, honey, you got a tape in the... Oh. Oh. <laughs> Did you ever accidentally go into that area? And accidentally, accidentally. With quotations. I mean, John's, like, John's idea of accidentally is like, if I walk backwards, it's like I, <laughs> I couldn't see where I was going. I do remember And your going, guys just like, just swipes your arm like, get out of there, you runt. <laughs> <laughs> you runt. One thing I never understood and uh, was later confirmed when I was much older and had to go to an adult video store for a murder mystery party we were doing. Long story. Needed some... Uh, oh, yeah. You remember that we we had a we we had a friend play a lawyer who was the person handing out the clues and you know with a little bit of comedy his briefcase accidentally opens and a bunch of pornography spills out and did, I didn't necessarily want to go to the convenience store and buy fifty dollars <laughs> worth of porn so we went to an adult video store where that was normal I guess and all of the the, the video cases if anybody's still buying DVDs I guess of porn are huge. Like, you know how a CD-ROM for a game is much bigger than a oh, DVD? Oh, so you can't just slip it in your pants kind of thing? You, is that why? Probably. I've never even thought of it. I just assumed that they, like, a record. You're like, I want to see the pictures big before I rent it. Probably, because they probably have a lot of people who don't want credit card statements to say adult video store or whatever if their wife's checking them, so they probably steal stuff. Huh. That's my best guess. That makes a lot of sense. All right, mystery solved. Yeah. Let's talk about Death Becomes Her. Sure. So I first saw this movie uh, on TV. I don't, I don't think it was really edited. And what? Were... I've never seen this on TV, I don't think. For the longest time, I had only ever seen this on TV. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
a, like a ritual for me as a kid was to get the TV guide on Sunday and then just go through every single day and look at the movie titles and go, okay, I'm going to watch that. I'm going to watch that. And it was just off the title. Occasionally they would have a little bit of a description, but for the most part, I had no idea what I was getting into. Wow. And Death Becomes Her for me was just a weird set of words. I, you know, I was like, a, I think it was maybe like 10 or 11. I didn't quite get that phrase. Death Becomes Her? Like that's, I could understand you know, Die Hard or yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, it just made sense, but this was weird. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, there's a really good scene in there where Goldie Hawn gets shot, and there's, like, a hole in her chest, and you can see through the hole. And I was like, this fucking movie sounds incredible. <laughs> so based on the title and my mother's recommendation, I stayed up till 2 in the morning and watched this movie. I loved it. Yeah, so we follow, primarily for the focus of the movie, we follow Meryl Streep playing Madeline Ashton, who is this aging Hollywood starlet. She's starring in a play called Songbird that has terrible reviews. Her People are walking out before the intermission. It's, I think it's during the opening number, to be honest. Yeah. Her high school friend Helen has brought her fiancé to meet Madeline. It's kind of her test to see if this is the right guy because Madeline has a tendency to steal Helen's boyfriend. Every single one of them. She needs him to pass the test so she brings Ernest to see her and lo and behold... He falls under her spell. Yeah, and this movie is nothing if not efficient. We pass through 14 years in less than 10 minutes. It's insane. It's seven years later, and then maybe four... Like, Two a, scenes, seven years later. Another seven years later. So Madeline steals Ernest. They get married. Ernest, who was a very famous plastic surgeon, is now a mortician. The mortician for hire, really. It seems like Like a spends... freelance mortician. That's a weird job. He's like the He's like substitute a... teacher of morticians. Yeah, like Or the wolf. Like uh, when you need when you got need a guy for a big job, you call him in last minute and he can get it done. An undead body painter. Madeline is, I'm gonna say, probably semi-retired because she doesn't really work anymore. I think she's out of the public eye. Yeah, and she's Dealing with aging? Not very well. <laughs> no, not at all. This movie, for the most part, is about vanity. It's about revenge. It's about an evil love triangle. But more than anything, I'd say it's about vanity. Yeah, and our three main leads are well-classed. They're well-to-do. They're kind of out of touch with reality. So even them in their pre fantasy states are kind of strange to watch because they don't live normal lives. Helen is obsessed and she becomes filled with this murderous rage for Madeline because stealing Ernest was the last straw. She gains a bunch of weight. <laughs> she goes off the fucking deep end. Yeah, and she ends up in a mental facility we kind of lose sight of her until we get an until Madeline gets an invitation to her book party, and she'd been trying to write for we know at least fourteen years. Is this her first book? I think so. Oh, because when she meets Madeline with Ernest, they're talking about how she's a good writer, and I don't think she's published anything. Oh shit! I guess I just always assumed she was a writer. That was her profession, and she went nuts after she lost Ernest and just started eating frosting out of the can for seven years. And the the tape she's watching of Madeline, I love it so much. It's almost like the Angels with Filthy Souls from Home Alone, the fact that they made their own tape. There's this scene where Madeline's being strangled, and she watches it on repeat. Over Just and eating over. frosting, out, like with her hand, with While all her the fucking cats in the background. While her landlord and the fucking cops are banging on the door. Oh, man. 
this film is shot so well though we're just grazing through the plot there's there's so many fucking cool moments they take painstaking efforts just like reanimator to stage shots in a way that things are revealed to you by swinging doors and by a well-placed mirror so many shots in this movie are actually in through a mirror and you don't necessarily notice it right at first it's brilliant there are a lot of scenes also with one take and that mirror i wish i had it written down who the uh, who the cinematographer of this movie was because he deserves a fucking award oh so cool but it's also kind of a move of robert zemeckis's anyway you see it with a lot of his movies i think that's also why he does mostly motion capture stuff now because he can really control a fluid camera moving around 700 different things before finally ending in one spot those aren't necessarily my bag, those movies, unfortunately. But, you know, maybe if they were less about Santa and more about the Grim Reaper, I'd watch it. Yeah, I'm not huge on motion capture, but he is so artful with the sweeping camera stuff and how he chooses to reveal stuff when he chooses to reveal stuff. There's two really good scenes that I want to talk about that we actually rewatched several times is when Helen is confronting Ernest about going to see Madeline or Madeline seeing him at work and having a dinner date. To oh, yeah, talk early about. in the movie. Yeah, and she's reefing on that cotton thing and Ernest is pacing in the foreground so we can only see his trench coat mm -hmm. but every time he pauses his face is reflected in a mirror that's on a table behind the couch Helen is sitting on yeah so much of this movie is is very much like hit your fucking mark because we need your reflection in this shot but and they cast such good actors that you don't it's effortless and you don't see the strings you no, don't see he has to pause right here you don't see we're doing this reflection here. There's a scene where we're revealing Madeline 14 years later and she's waking up in her bed and her nanny housemaid Assistant. is opening the drawing rooms kind of like Cinderella does in the beginning of the Disney version. And we don't know that we're looking at a mirror. There's a mirror behind the bed and Madeline's not really making eye contact with her and she's giving all these smarmy side glances. You think she's talking to somebody who's behind her. Yeah. But that behind her is just a mirrored headboard, which, I mean, honestly, that's gotta be really fucking vain. Like, to have your headboard be a mirror? Yeah. Like, the last thing you see when you go to bed is yourself and the first <laughs> thing you see when you wake up? But it's such a cool way to film a scene because we're getting a close-up of Madeline, but we see the whole room. We it's see genius. the vastness yep. and the luxury she lives in. You can see in her closet and that it's huge and there's all these shoes and clothes and it practically but we're moves on a close-up like, yeah and it practically moves like a crane shot inside that room to pull from her face back to the uh, the other end of the room to sort of do an over-the-shoulder shot with rose as we cut back to Ernest, who's asleep on the floor upstairs <laughs> Using his old scalpels as darts. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like, that seems to be the height of depression. To be super successful and live in a gigantic mansion but wake up every morning on the floor. Like, that's how you know you've done some wrong in your life. I, ha I juggle between who is my favorite character in this film. I think my most recent watch, Ernest, is my favorite yes! character. But I juggle between Madeline and Helen. I love fucking Helen because she's psycho. And Madeline is just this, like, vain bitch. I, ugh. They play their characters so well. Yep. And the dialogue is so on point for each of them. Ernest is so pathetic. I know. I want Bruce Bruce Willis to go back to doing more comedies. He used to, but it's... I don't know that he'd be able to pull it off anymore. He used to be so goddamn funny. And even in his action movies, he was always a comedic lead. 
it's so interesting to see him knowing he did Die Hard and all those movies and his posture in this movie and his cardigans and yeah. his sad balding head and the glasses and he just portrays the embodiment of who Ernest is especially with all the time passing mm -hmm. it's so well done yeah he evolves to be a guy who is a shadow of himself he is living in a shell he doesn't even know what to do with himself anymore other than just be drunk from the moment he wakes up to the moment he passes out that's sad yeah. But Madeline, super vain, has all the money in the world and it's doing nothing to keep her young. Until, of course, she gets word of a... Lisa von Ruman. Ah, she gets word <laughs> of Lisa von Ruman. So after Madeline gets invited to Helen's book party, she is hustling to her plastic surgeon to try and get something done about her wrinkles, her aging, because she needs to look sharp at Helen's book party. Mm -hmm. And she can't get the treatment she normally does because she cannot get it as often as she does. Which is some sort a weird blood transfusion thing? I know it's very yeah it's yeah, very strange we, we can't remove the plasma from your blood and more like more than once in six months <laughs> but Mr. Ashton you had one three weeks ago I love that as soon as she panics she drops that accent so hard Mr. Chagall <laughs> I'm so sorry Mr. Chagall okay I'm just gonna sit back you go ahead and do the rest of the audio I'm from the sorry. movie no 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 it's no big deal I fucking love this movie this movie's incredible he tells her about Lisa von Ruman, who has a very select group of people, and he's really vague. He doesn't say what it is. It's basically just going to cure whatever ails her. She tears it up. She's not going to do it. She's over it. And it isn't until her, like, super young boy hunk rejects her, that, and it's pouring rain, and she her makeup's everywhere, and she looks pathetic, that she's just like, fuck, I'm going! And it's the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. But and they're expecting her. They are expecting her. And... Lisa's got these, like, man hunks who are essentially... Who are those guys that have the tigers, the magicians? Oh, Siegfried and Roy. Yeah, they're like hunky Siegfried and Roy's. She's got 12 hunky Siegfried and Roy's. Basically, but <laughs> also playing the part of the tigers is Siegfried and Roy. Like, there's, there's just a dozen of them. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So Lisa von Ruben, played by Isabella Rossellini, is... Such a weird character in She's this movie. She's so cool. She is like the serpent in the garden of good and evil. She's like an efficient vampire. There's yeah. no fuss, no muss. Like, she she seduces you by being vague and promising. She's not even promising anything. She just kind of shows what the elixir does. But she is so sly. And her character is very sexual. She wears very little clothing. But there's she's not sexy about it she's just efficiently like scary she's in love with her body basically right she yeah, wants to like be the that embodiment of vanity yeah. like confidence and arrogance i also love that she only just got into town because she follows the, follow spring the spring around the world i haven't seen a an autumn or a winter in years brilliant because we are in the springtime of her... Discontent. There we go, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And the same as in Reanimator, we don't know anything about this elixir. We just learn what it does. Yeah. Madeline pays a good frickin' penny for it, mm -hmm. and she downs it real quick, and then as she's walking out of this McMansion, like, everything is defying Ev gravity. Yeah, everything tightens back <laughs> up. And the special effects... Hold up. They really do. Look so good still. Oh, yeah. I, I'm really remove... upset we, that we don't have this movie on Blu-ray. It would look incredible. They remove age spots from their hands, and her face gets, like, the best Instagram filter I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Sans puppy ears. And... Just looks so good. It's probably got to be really flattering to know that those scenes were 
probably just how Meryl Streep looked on a regular day. Like, they just aged her for those first few scenes, but now she's looking great again, and it's really just regular Meryl. <laughs> I think she went to Hel- She goes to Helen's book party before she goes to Lisa, right? Yeah, we see that, uh, we see Helen, and she's looking trim. She's not the, like, the really overweight cat lady who's just eating frosting and getting down on herself. Yeah, she is like Jessica Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah red yeah, yeah. dress. Super cool 50s perm style. And, the, oh, so an- another thing that I love about this movie is that it's almost timeless. It's an old Hollywood era, but it's modern day, so it's noirish, but it's it could be the 70s, it could be the 90s, it could be any goddamn time between the 30s and now. I love that, because it could be played at any time. It's like well, a fable. Yeah, because the, the movie that Helen's watching is black and white. Songbird is a... 50s style with disco infused into it yeah yeah and you're right it it doesn't really have a a time period because it's got just a lot of opulence Mm -hmm. and we're not sure if these women are just like over the top or if they're wearing hair of the time and there's nothing more timeless than marble it's all throughout that house marble (laughs) tragically though madeline comes home and she's just got so much goddamn confidence that she is pushing Ernest's fucking buttons when she gets home and he pushes her god down the goddamn stairs can you imagine getting the like the elixir for eternal youth and then just dying within yeah, an hour yeah it was within 3 hours i would say so fucking ironic right but this isn't before ernest and helen plot to kill madeline regardless they're going to have a fancy dinner and they're going to poison her and throw her off a cliff basically. i love that scene i love the scene where they are planning out the murder the interesting thing is i don't think we ever know helen's motives I don't think Helen forgives Ernest. I don't think she wants to live with him happily ever after, after Madeline's dead. Well, I think the the only person she hates more than Ernest is Madeline. That's, like, laser focus. I think it's like, we'll deal with Ernest afterwards. But I don't think there's any kind of, like... Because she's seducing him in that, you'll be free, we'll be free, we can be in well, yeah, love it's again. Like, it's not you, you didn't go to her, she took you from me. And then with Madeline, it's... Oh, it's the you, exact same thing the, reversed. Yeah, exactly. Like he, You didn't take him from me, he went to you. It wasn't yeah. you, it was him. <laughs> yeah, she definitely hates them both. I'm sure she assumes that if Madeline is out of the picture, everything will go back to the way it was, and everything will be fine. Because even if she doesn't love Ernest, she can hate fuck him because she killed Madeline, and that's all. <laughs> All that fucking mattered. Yeah. So Ernest, after pushing her down the stairs, calls Helen and is like, well, I did it, I did it. And she's like, well, fuck. She so breaks her neck on every step down those stairs, by yeah, the way. Yeah, she d- takes a serious fucking tumble. Helen's scrambling to try and rejig the plan. First of all, he did not call the cops before calling her. And secondly, how the fuck are they going to get away with it now? They had a perfect plan in motion and now everything's screwed because some dumb, drunk idiot got a little hasty. <laughs> Pushed her down the stairs. Right, as you do. While this is happening, in the background, Twisted Up Madeline is standing up. I love this movie. And her neck is completely twisted 180 degrees. <laughs> it is fucking dark comedy gold. She doesn't even know what's happening, because in her mind, she's alive, everything's fine, but wait a minute. I can see my ass! Oh, man. Fucking, what a weird line. I am not the biggest, like, Meryl Streep can do anything ever. She is so fucking good in this scene. 
the nuances of her voice when she screeches at him, mm -hmm. she can like change it and get really like nasty. In just a word. From you, syllable to syllable. Oh, she, she, she can, can be hiss a, like, yeah. you pushed me down the stairs. So good. So good. It's pretty great. And the effects are amazing. Oh yeah. I think some of my favorite parts about this whole sequence are when we take her to the emergency room. Not even just for Sidney Pollock, who's playing the oh, doctor. Oh, he's so good. He's incredible in this. But there's a moment where Bruce Willis is looking around for Sidney Pollock after he's left the room, and there is a tennis player in the ER. <laughs> <laughs> his like knees are all fucked up. His knees are yeah. His knees are down to like the bone, and his tennis racket's broken. He's just like I don't know what happened. I just <laughs> dove for the ball, and now I'm here. It's so funny. I couldn't. That, that was like a whole day filming that one little shot. Yeah, the the taking Madeline to the emergency room scene is probably one of my favorites of the film. And I'm gonna. I'm. They're all my favorite moments. This is so good because yeah, the doctor. She's definitely dead. Her wrist is broken, and he's bending it back she all the way. Thing. Yeah. And he looks at her collarbone. He's like, "Well, the the bone protruding through the skin." Yeah. And she's got no heartbeat. No nothing. And the doctor is just like completely bewildered. Bruce Willis is like, "Check, check for shock. Maybe check, check for shock. Maybe it's shock." <laughs> Oh. Long story short, that doctor... Uh, has a heart attack. Yeah, has a heart attack and dies because he cannot understand what he's looking at. By the time Bruce Willis comes back, though, the entire room's emptied. And unfortunately, the orderly tells him that they've brought in his wife to the morgue. Oh, and his line there. Like, the morgue! She'll be furious! <laughs> it's brilliant. Guys, I, I cannot stress enough how much you need to watch this movie. Us trying to recreate these scenes uh, for you. Not good. No, it's not good. Not good at all. And his physical acting, like I was saying, when he's running to the morgue, he is so goofy and haphazard and silly. And then we have that crazy ethereal moment where the nuns are hover floating down the hallway just for an extra, like, added weird fantastical eeriness. It's pretty great. They bring her back home, though. They start trying to fix her up. He starts doing his mortician work on her. To he's... paint her up, because she's yeah. starting to look dead. Exactly. Her skin's starting to turn color, so he's got to make her look pretty again. Despite the fact that she can live forever, she's going to start looking pretty decrepit soon, so he's going to go to town, he's going to go to work, and then Helen shows up. And Helen is not disgusting. Ernest rushes downstairs. He's trying to get her off the back patio, but she's screaming like, are you doing anything funny with Madeline? And Madeline can hear all this upstairs, and she comes down, grabs a shotgun, and blasts Helen in the stomach. Pretty great. In probably the greatest special effects of the early 90s. <laughs> her, you can see through her stomach. You can see the backdrop, and they matched it up fucking perfectly in mm -hmm. every scene and you are looking for it and it is flawless yeah I, we mentioned in a previous episode you will see the exact same special effect in tales from the crypt bordello of blood not done nearly as well and maybe because it's with Corey feldman and not goldie hahn <laughs> she throws a shovel through it it's so good and then later she sits down in the handle and it's so good so good yeah, unfortunately, there isn't a moment in this movie that we're not impressed by. I know, it's, it's, I always try to restrain from doing a film that I love too much because it's just that, like... You can't discuss it, you're just like, and then this! And, and it was great, and, and I love this! <laughs> but yeah, now that they've essentially killed each other, they've both died, they've both gotten it out of their systems, they've beat each other up a bunch, she crushes her goddamn head with a shovel, they're friends again! Because they apologize for all that shit that they did to each other when they were younger. Because they've always kind of been frenemies. 
Yeah, but, you know, unfortunately, Bruce Willis has decided he does not want anything to do with either of them. So he's packed his bags. He's leaving. Of course, this presents a problem for them because... They don't have anybody to paint them, and they look yeah. like dead people. Yeah, they're going to need to keep them around. And, I mean, even if he decides to stay, he's not going to live forever. He's going to die! So they knock him out, and they take him to Lisa, try to get her to convince him to drink the potion and live forever. And I assume he would take care of everybody in that I community, right? I think it's because right? Lisa wants to employ him. Oh, totally. Yeah. Do you think that was the game all along? Like, they, they, they got Madeline so they could get to Ernest? I don't know. I don't think so. But she was aware of him, though. Very true. Because she talks about her husband's reputation. Mmm. How, what world do we live in where the plastic surgeon, Oh, I bet now you. mortician, is more famous than the actress that he's married to? I don't know. I think in high circles, like, the, the high-up plastic surgeons and, like, the dietitians and stuff probably do pretty well for themselves socially. <laughs> yeah, good point. They probably get invited to all the fucking parties. Hmm. Yeah, it's like either the guy who can fix your face or the psychiatrist who can prescribe things to fix your brain. Those are the two guys you want at the fucking yeah. party. <laughs> like, this is my private doctor. <laughs> we know how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Bruce Willis, like any sane person, knows there's no end to this. Yeah, he's about to take it, and it isn't until Lisa's You'll Live Forever that he rethinks it and is like, no, I don't want to do that. It'll be boring. Yeah, right? And this is something that I've always thought of, too. I don't want to live forever. That's, no. That scene, I had a really hard time watching it when I was a kid because I grew up pretty religious at this time, mm -hmm. and it that was probably the scariest thought to me as a kid about like going to heaven thinking about eternal life and stuff and it really fucked me up as a kid it's weird this was the scariest movie i probably watched yeah and it's the the silliest funniest most fantastical movie about death it's kind of like paranormal and stuff and um nightmare before christmas how it handles death but just the the complex thought of living forever terrified me it still scares me but as a kid i I couldn't even handle it. Yeah, what happens if you get bored? What if you get lonely? What if you get pushed down a... What if you fall down, you a, fall down a flight of stairs? <laughs> oh, it's, it's too good. There is an alternate ending to this movie, though, that we have still not fucking seen. I want to get the Shout Factory release. I don't think it's on there. I'm pretty sure they announced that they tried to get it, and it's not there. Well, we either, need it anyways. Either Ro well, yeah. Like, either Robert we have the shitty blockbuster Blu-ray that we... With the snot guard cover. <laughs> uh, always with the snot guard covers. <laughs> I, well, I like the snot guard cover. Yeah, I like it. It's, it's fine. Whatever. It's it's suitable. We'll get the Blu-ray. We should get the Blu-ray. Because I want to watch some special features. But from what I understand, either um, the, the footage is hard to acquire or it's not out there. But there is a complete alternate ending to this movie, which I think was the original involving Ernest as an elderly man. Correct. I'm sure they, because they have photos of him in the old age makeup yeah. at his casket. So there has to be more of that. In, in the ending that's on the DVD and, you know, went to theaters, we watch Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep go to Bruce Willis's funeral because they're eternal. They're going to live forever. They're going to watch everybody they love around them die. And that's that's what they're fated to do. They're <laughs> but I love that in that scene, they're old hags, even though they're not any older. But they're, time-wise, old. They're like the old Muppets, who are always in the rafters, 
scrutinizing and commenting on everything else. Yeah. They are just And they're jerks. impolite and they're smarmy and it's because they're not in public and they don't deal with people so they've lost oh, that that's touch. So true. They're shouting and they're weird. That's kind of people that are reclusive. They don't have the social skills. Do you wonder if they watched Grey Gardens? No, the people in Grey Gardens are that really... That would have been cool. The, the ladies in Grey Gardens are actually really nice. Like, they're not... They're Grey not... Gardens is a scary movie. Well, yeah, Grey Gardens is fucking terrifying, but I, not... I, when I, you watch I... that, you don't go, they're mean, they're awful. Like, no. even as weird and reclusive as their life got, they seemed incredibly polite and nice. Yeah. Eaten... That's the attire of the day. I'm sorry. Oh. I, fucking Grey Gardens is good. Right? Just oh. eating, eating... That shit hits my soul. Sharing ice cream with a plastic knife with your cat oh god Ugh. so weird yeah fuck this movie's so good um, final thoughts anything you want to say before we i get want to just like talk about the movie I, for an hour I, know. Uh, I hope you guys rewatched it for this episode because otherwise we're gonna sound like a bunch of silly fangirls just shouting out scenes at you especially you uh i'm sorry <laughs> there is not a fucking flaw in this movie it Agreed. is it's just so good and I, it's so yeah. efficient the way the movie progresses and the passing of time and how each vignette is so strange when we see just Helen's regressing into this really sad, obsessive character, and then we flash to her and something's completely changed. Because of the universe, you don't question it, and it it's just such a fucking awesome movie. It is an incredibly efficient script, I'll give you that. There is no fat to be trimmed off of it. It goes, it moves along really goddamn quickly. Every scene is important. The, the thing about that, though, is that the characters still get to live and breathe. Oh, yeah. There's so many fucking cool one-liners. There's so much smarmy dialogue. You know 100% who each of the characters are. And when they deliver a really curt line or a really sassy line, you fucking believe it. And that's really hard to do. Normally, when you write trailer dialogue, mm -hmm. moments that are can be quick blurbs that can be cut out and pasted, it sounds contrived when you hear it in the actual movie and this whole movie is trailer dialogue yeah it's really over the top but it's that's because it's like a cartoon version of reality it's brilliant it is a nickelodeon cartoon directed by an award-winning like <laughs> an award-winning team i like this movie a lot but kim i need your rating four out of four i would give it a five out of four if i could yeah i i am also giving this a four out of four so we're gonna have to throw this to you guys which movie do you like more Reanimator or Death Becomes Her? And please, please do rewatch or watch for the first time Death Becomes Her. I think it might be a new favorite of yours if you are into dark comedy and just really weird, bizarre film. Yeah, head over to Twitter at NOFS Podcast. And before you head out, be sure to rate us a five star and review on whatever platform you're listening. It really helps us get the show in front of more fiends. We're going to stick around for a few more minutes. I've got a little game that I've put together for our patrons. If you'd like to hear Kim go through my Mountains of Metallica trivia game. Is that why you've been listening to so much Metallica? <laughs> well, I mean that, and I've been listening to Slayer a lot. Like, I'm just on a heavy metal kick. Slayer's on a farewell tour, and I'm really sad about it. But I'm going to read you a title, and you need to tell me whether it is an H.P. Lovecraft short story or a Metallica song title. Oh, man. For instance, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one to try it right now. Uh... The Lurking Fear. Is that a story by Lovecraft, or is that a Metallica song? I don't know if Metallica would use the word lurking. 
So I'm going to go with HP Lovecraft. All right. Well, if you guys want to hear the answer to that oh! question, <laughs> head over to patreon.com slash nightmare on film street. By the way, it was Lovecraft. Oh, yay. Um, <laughs> Check out this stupid little game that I've put together for this episode and check out all of the cool bonus content available to you as a monthly supporter of the show. But thanks again, guys. We'll catch you next time. I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay, Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. Just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Ow! Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at NOFS Podcast. And as always, more terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreet.com podcast.com until next week stay creepy fiends enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm sign up using code oldline and receive up to $1500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matters more than ever remember to use code oldline and receive up to $1500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.